Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is the global podcast that explores how to apply behavioral science insights to our work and life, basically to make both better. We talk with experts across many disciplines to learn how we can improve our thinking, how we can make better decisions, and ultimately how we can positively change our behavior. We couldn't do it without our fantastic guests. They are the ones who really make this show special. Yeah, that's right, Kurt. And Behavioral Grooves really relies on the knowledge of other people, the people we have as guests. And we want to tell you about an exciting new behavioral science conference that features some of our most favorite guests. Nudge It North is a virtual conference taking place on January 8th, 2021. This conference gathers some of the, our most beloved podcast guests into a virtual sharing environment where you will get to ask them questions and have discussions with others on everything that you've heard. The conference will bring behavioral science insights to practitioners in all sorts of fields, across all sorts of industries, with all sorts of folks joining us. Yeah, it is going to be great. And if you want to hear great insights from some of the Behavioral Groove's coolest guests, then you want to get signed up at www.nudgeitnorth.com. Our keynote speakers will be using a fireside chat model, and they include Annie Duke, Gary Latham, and Robert Cialdini. But Tim, in addition to our three keynotes, we'll have a number of other great speakers and former guests of this show, including our guest from episode number three, Dr. Scott Jeffrey. We also have Dr. Brad Shuck, Charlotte Blank, Prince Gooman, Jonathan Mann, Dr. Amy Booker, to name just a few of our many guests. Yeah, we are adding more great speakers to the list each week. So please check out www.nudgeitnorth.com site for more information and to register. And to make it even easier for you, we are offering a Behavioral Groove listeners an additional benefit. Just use the promo code GROOVES and you will get a 15% discount off the ticket price. So, so they just need to type in GROOVES to save 15%? That's right, Kurt. Grooves, G-R-O-O-V-E-S. Grooves. And so I think that's enough on that. Can we just get... <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're sounding like an insurance commercial. 15%. Save 15%. <laughs> Okay, so our guest in this episode is Dr. Cornelia Walter, and she has worked for nearly two decades with UNICEF and the World Food Health Program in large-scale emergencies in West Africa, Afghanistan, and Haiti. Cornelia's work focuses on social transformation from the inside out, looking at individual aspirations as the point of departure. And in 2017, she initiated the POSE dynamic. POSE stands for purpose, optimization, zenith, and exposure. And she used it in Haiti, offering individuals tools to identify and pursue their aspirations. Cornelia is also the author of several books on improving and changing the way social services work. We were excited to talk to her about her books and work and how behavioral science can help social service organizations, or indeed any organization, improve how they operate and achieve their mission. Yeah, from the POSE methodology to emotional contagion to leadership practices, we covered a lot of ground that we think will help you become a better leader or a better person in general. So we invite you to sit back with your favorite glass of humanitarian impact and enjoy our show with Dr. Cornelia Walter. Cornelia Walter, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. 
Thank you. All right. We are excited to have you here. And as always, we start with a speed round. I get the opportunity to tell the first question. So coffee or tea, which do you prefer? Both, depending on the time of the day. Ooh, and oh. so which is which is morning, which is evening? Um, ideally, first water, then coffee, then tea, and in the afternoon, it's the other way around. Okay, huh. very good. Okay, okay. Uh, you've traveled all over the world. Would you prefer to travel when it's just for fun on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? Um, I like to have an idea of where I go and what's to see there, but then with flexibility in the itinerary to um, expand, um, change, drop. So an agile, agile itinerary. <laughs> okay. okay. A flexible itinerary. I like it. I like it. All right. All right. Would you rather learn a new language or a new instrument? A new language. I'm new not language. good at music even, so I like to listen to it. And I started Japanese and Arabic at university, but never really dived into it. And I just find it fascinating how you think differently depending on the language that you're thinking in. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, certainly the difference between German and, and English, both, I mean, both are romantic languages, but the, but the construction of the sentences are different. Yeah, but what's even more drastic when you compare German and French? Oh. Because Germans are very much like, whereas the French, it's like three times around the pot until you jump in. <laughs> so, so, Cornelia, how many languages do you speak right now? Uh, four and a half. Yeah, you put me to shame. So wow. uh, that, that's, you know, I am the, the typical American who speaks American, you know, which is, you know, what we do. <laughs> which is. What we do. However, my, when you mentioned Japanese, my son is taking Japanese um, and he's taken oh. three years of it already and is in his fourth year. And so I find that fascinating because, again, it's a very different structure and even how the language is written, much less how it's, 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 you know, processed within your brain. So yeah. fascinated by that. All right. Okay. Last speed round question. We're just blazing through this. <laughs> Cornelia, which, which would be better to do what you love or to love what you do? It's not an either or. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, so talk to us about that. Um, I mean, generally speaking, I think that compromises are overrated and that when you do what you love, you're getting better at it, even if you are not good at it when you start off. Yeah, so, so it's, it's, not, it's one of those many questions where there is no black and white answer. It's yeah. a, a colorful rainbow in between. And ideally, the journey combines the loving what you do and you're doing what you love. Fantastic. Well, this is central to a, a lot of your work, isn't it? Is 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 this continuum? This idea of of bringing things together. Could we could we start with uh, talking a little bit about you describing your work um, from as as an author and 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 your perspective on the world? Sure. Um, so basically, the um, the Posé paradigm and the three books that have come up over the or out over the past three months, no, 
performance. Um, they are somehow an organic result of my 20 years with a humanitarian organization, my PhD on children's rights and the universal responsibility to make them come true, and my own personal experience in trying out different ways of becoming a better person, I guess. It's like all of this put together and what I try to do, and it's a work in process because there are so many thoughts in that direction all around the world, is to come up with a framework that unites the best of all worlds within one coherent perspective. Because throughout the millennia, people have been thinking about this apparent paradox that people pursue their own interests, even so they know deep down that A, when you arrive at your last breath, then none of what you have accumulated matters, and B, that they are the most content when they do something for other people. And that's not something, I don't pretend that anything that's written in Pose is new. The only difference that may be there is that putting it all together. So tell us a little bit about Pose. Uh, obviously, this is, this is something key and, uh, to, to you and, and your work. So what, what is Pose? Um, Pose is a way to see and live differently. And it's on the one hand, it's a word. It's, I started the whole initiative in Haiti in 2017. And when I presented the paradigm and the methodology to colleagues and asked them, well, how would you call that if we were to introduce that? And they said, well, this is posé. This is inner peace in Haitian Creole. Hmm. Um, but also what I realized afterwards is that the four letters of the word, they are also A, resonating with the outcomes, which means a different perspective on life, the optimization of the interplay that determines your own being and becoming and your interaction with others which then gradually leads you to the zenith of your own being, which you can then experience and expose to the world. Building on that then, it's also an ex ex um, exercise because pause, observe what's going on around you, zoom in to yourself and experience what's going on. And I could go on. I can send you a mini clip that has seven different meanings for Pose, but I, I don't want to take too much of the time. I love the, yeah. the way that you're bringing the different uh, elements together and, and just this act, you know, not only is it outlining it through the, the letters, but also then looking and, and making it actionable with pause, observe, zoom in, experience, all of these pieces. So when you're, when you're, bringing this to to the world how how are you seeing it or how do you want it to be applied are you are you looking at this obviously you've done a lot of work with humanitarian groups is this is this a component that other humanitarian groups can take a look at and apply into their work is it broader than that what's the what's the way that you want to make this manifest itself 
it's something that can serve everybody because mm -hmm. I think we're all somewhere deep down looking for ways to be happy and to somehow reach that stage where we feel the connection between making others happy and contributing to our own happiness, number one. But there are four practical components, if you like, or methodologies that go with Pussy and that are building on it, which is purpose for power, compassion for change, honesty for humility, and influence for impact. The first one is for schools and which is basically um, following up on the prototype that we launched in Haiti in 2017 and which aims to give caregivers, teachers, nurses, teachers, everybody who interacts with other people. And so is in direct interaction with, okay, I'm happy, I can give that to others, or I'm not, and then I'm basically a stone that is thrown into the water, which has mm, negative ripple effects. Um, so that's a curriculum where you reach the person who needs care or who is a student, a, ch a child, through the caregiver that's taking care of them. Compassion for change is looking at institutions, but in particular aid organizations. Again, with that principle, you can give outside only what you have found inside. And right now, a lot of aid organizations do not put the well-being of their staff where it should be. But if you have staff who are burned out, who are um, disillusioned with the work that they are doing, then they cannot help the organization live up to that potential that is written in their mandate. Um, then there is influence for impact, which is this whole aspect of working with the brain rather than pushing against it and overloading it with information and photos and stories and all that other stuff. And rather understanding the fact that, well, we have inbuilt tweaks we have biases, we have fallacies, we have, we're falling prone to so many traps all along the day and science is putting this information at our fingertips. So the private sector is using it, the military has been using it for decades. Why are organizations that are meant to make the world a better place are not using that systematically. Yes, I agree, it's a fine line between manipulation on the, on the one side and then the positive outcomes on the other. But if we understand that, and if we define that line, then there's so much to be won from a more systematic understanding and approach of the brain. And the last one is honesty for humility and which is more at the leadership angle and which looks at the fact that leaders and no matter the sector and no matter the level can be inspiring role models for those who work under them. But again, for that, they need to first find answers to the uncomfortable questions that underpin their own being, which is why am I here? Who am I as a person? Where do I want to go? 
and what do I have to do to align my aspirations and my actions? Sorry, that was a long answer. No, it's a, it's a wonderful answer. I want to go back to when you were talking about compassion for change. You brought up this, uh, the workers and, and having workers being burnt out and not being able to to give. What, what do you what do you see? Has that is that increased over the past? Uh, you, you've been working in this in this field and in uh, you know the humanitarian field for a long time. Have you seen that? Uh, burnout increase? Has it just always been that way? And what are what are some of the underlying reasons for that? And then what can people do? What can what can organizations do in order to to help ensure that that burnout does not happen? Um, I don't know if I'm well placed to give like the historical perspective there. I mean, Fair I enough. worked in the field for 18 years, but there are people who have been in it for much longer. I think one of the reasons that many people feel like they don't get out of it what they came to fulfill is that they gradually lose touch with that meaning. I mean, maybe I'm naive. Maybe I think that people join the humanitarian or the development scene because they want to help others. I'm sure there's always a minority there who joins for all kinds of career perspectives or because they are runners or because they are seekers or whatever, whatnot. I'm sure like in any other sector, there are all kinds of lives. But the vast majority of people who joins the sector, I'm convinced, does it because they have a vocation, they feel that, okay, I want to do this because I want to do something for others. And many of those people, and in particular, those who are driven by this, I want to make a difference, when they are working and integrating an organization that is a big machine, and many aid organizations had no choice, potentially, to become such a big machine just because of donor needs and because of the importance of fundraising and whatever not. Again, there are many reasons and it's not one of those questions where a black and white, a bad and good answer is good enough. But when people enter a machine and they're more and more passing their time on responding to processes and when they were swallowed up by bureaucracies rather than being in touch with the people whom they came to help. So basically the person that they came to support is replaced by a computer screen and the action is replaced by a spreadsheet. Then I think that is one of the big pieces of the equation that needs to be addressed. And the other element is the human aspect that people, no matter in which sector they work, be it a bank, be it a humanitarian organization, be it a restaurant or be it a news agency, they're human beings. And in the end of the game, you get out of the game what goes into it. And only if the human person can be 
that human person all throughout the day. And it's not like, okay, I'm coming in now and now I put my hat and humanity out at the door and then I do my job and then I go home and I do what I'm passionate about. That's not going to work. And especially not if it's a line of work that either you have your heart in it or the outcomes are like, yeah, well, lukewarm. So coming back to your entry question, you love what you do and you do what you love. <laughs> Both at the same time. Yes. Yeah, not not one or the other. Yeah, no. ex exactly. Uh, I, I, the cha the getting to where your I mean the, your your worldview philosophy is so beautifully interconnected, right? It's all about interconnectedness, um, and and I I just love this, but. And it is, and it's, and as you said, it's not so much that it's new, but it is certainly something that humans have pursued for a long, long time. I think we can go back to the Buddha, you know, five hundred years before Common Era, started talking about this idea of of this interconnectedness. It's hard, right? If we're still talking about it twenty five hundred years later, it's hard to do. Um, and you mentioned status quo bias is one of the biggest challenges that we have to overcome. How do we overcome that in order to, to start to breach into this uh, interconnectedness? I mean, the fact that there are people for millennia that have been thinking about it and certainly more smart, smarter people than I am, um, shows you that I won't give you an answer in 10 seconds here, but um, <laughs> I think you can't summarize it all down in just a know. one sentence, you know, kind of component there. Um, I could try. Um, <laughs> we don't expect that. <laughs> I think there are four elements, and that's awareness, acceptance, alignment, and accountability. And the first one is awareness. In the moment where you realize that. A, you yourself, but also everybody around you is a composition of four dimensions, aspirations, emotions, thoughts, and sensations. And that no matter how you experience the world, but also how you express yourself in the world is a result of this ongoing interplay. And that nothing is completely clean cut. Okay, this is rational. This is a fact. But already in the moment where you take that fact in, the way you assimilate and you digest and you make sense of it is something which is completely dependent on your four dimensions, which themselves are shaped from where you're coming from, who you are. Right. So it's, it's not this very moment is determined by everything that happened before. But what's interesting is that it's also this very moment that you have not really entire control over, but it's also this moment that you have complete control over, which is going to determine all the moments that are about to come. So it's this, this paradox of, okay, the past is gone, but the future is in your hands. So that's this aware awareness piece. The second element is the acceptance that, yes, you can fight about it. Yes, you can deny it. But 
in the end, that's just how the game is played. So either you accept the rules or you spend your life with energy invested in something that you're not going to change. But in the moment where you accept it and where you accept that not only yourself, but everybody else functions that way, you are a big step ahead. Because in the moment where you know what the status quo is, you can do something about it. Rather than considering yourself as a victim, that it's like this nutshell that is floating along the stream. And then that brings you to alignment, which is now you know what the four dimensions are. So you can systematically work on optimizing their interplay. Rather having this erratic, okay, so my emotions are influenced by what I have eaten for lunch and what I'm thinking today is influenced by, well, the bad stuff that happened to me two days ago. Well, in the moment where you know the pieces, you can start to work on how are you going to harmonically arrange them. And obviously this is not something that you do in a checklist approach. Okay, I know this now, so let's do it. But it's a work in progress. And it's this aspect of, okay, I can train my brain. I can train myself. It's creating habits. It's this Gangalian notion of our brain of, okay, I can work on this. And there's this fascinating book of um, Norman Deutsch of the um, neuroplasticity. So that you do something and the first time it's an effort, but the more you repeat it, the more it becomes part of your hardware. So it's this fascinating interplay of software and hardware and hardware and software. So that's why change happens from the inside out with the intention of, okay, I understand this now. I want to change something about it. I'm doing something. And then each time you repeat it, it becomes a little tiny bit easier. You do something about it, even if you don't feel like it that very day, but you do it. And then the next day, it's a tiny bit easier. And eventually, that action, which seemed so outrageously uncomfortable, one day might end up being completely normal. Mm. And then leads then to the last stage, which is accountability. And in the moment where you have that knowledge, where you know how it works, and where you understand that everybody functions that way, well, then it becomes a choice not to do it. And we are accountable for taking that choice or not. That is a fantastic outline. And thank you for, for going into those. I love this idea of, of awareness and, and having that be this element of being aware of the context within which all of these things are taking place. Because that's what I'm, I'm hearing you say is, is understanding that people have these four dimensions. And so even if we're looking at the same exact piece of information, the way that that gets processed and interpreted is going to be vast. It could be vastly different depending upon that person's history, 
the, what they ate for lunch, you know, all of the other things that you have just talked about. And, and off too often, I believe, I think that too often we think that everybody thinks like we think. That, you know, if, if I present you with this information, you should now take that information and your mind should be mirroring my mind exactly. And we know that that's not the case. And yet that's kind of the default for how people people kind of show up. And so I think this is a really great component of thinking about awareness as not just awareness about what's going on around you and making note of that, but being aware of how other people are showing up within this. Um, so that was a long-winded, just uh, kind of re- reiterating <laughs> my my enjoyment of of what you were just saying there. No, but it's it's exactly that, and it's it's in a way it's like each of us is a kaleidoscope, and you put that kaleidoscope in front of a mirror, and then you put another mirror, and yet another mirror, and yet another mirror. <laughs> so you have like this echo chamber of different dimensions that are bouncing off onto each other, but what comes out of this is then yet again this multi-piece image. Yeah. And the fascinating thing is that it's never graved in stone. It's never standing still. It's constantly evolving. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you talk about uh, is also the four C's, right? Which is this connection, change, continuum, and, and complementary. Can you go in a little bit and, and, and talk about that? Because I think the connection piece, particularly given what we just talked about, is really important as we're thinking through all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's four principles that underpin everything, that underpin the individual, and that underpin whatever happens in society overall. It's everything is always changing. And that's, again, something which is not new. It's something we know that, that no matter how much we want to hold on to something, it's going to change. That's change is the only permanent thing in the world. <laughs> it's been said many times. Um, the, the element of connection, everything is connected. Nothing happens in a vacuum. I mean, COVID is like the prime example that it's like the wing of the butterfly you have one person who is sick goes into the supermarket is not wearing a mask or is wearing a mask but is touching the yogurt you are going in there you're taking out the yogurt you're going home maybe you're not washing your hands or maybe you're just um doing like this, or maybe you're caressing your child, whatever it is, everything is connected. And it can be tiny little bits that would be completely without importance in another context. The third element is continuum, that we are all part of whole. And it's not this clear cut box thinking that we like to that we have, okay, this goes in this category and this goes in that category, which leads to stigmatization, to stereotyping, to this whole range of um, tendencies that the human mind is very prone to. Um, But that we understand there's no black or white. There are plenty of shades of gray and all colors in between. And it's, it's just this ongoing, okay, it starts here, but it's not ending there. And then the last element is the complementarity. 
because each of us is a unique combination of skills and resources and characteristics and all other kinds of stuff. And that is complementary to somebody else and something else. And if we put the whole game together and we optimize that complementarity, then we have something that is helping humanity and each of us to come to a completely different level. But in the moment where we have competition instead of complementarity, yeah, well, we're always limited by what's on our own plate, right? Yeah, yeah, that that's that's so true. You 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 wrote something that uh, that I just found so interesting. You said, "So driven was I by the craving for something or another that I omitted to savor the beauty of now." And and I was wondering, was there a catalyst? to get you to savor the beauty of now? Was there, was there an event or a, a period of time in your life when you were like, wait a minute, I need to, I need to stop and savor? Um, that's a good question. Um, and I think I come back to this element of continued change and continued evolution. But I've been, I mean, I have been thinking over the past 15 years, if you like, ever and again that, okay, I want to do this and I want to do that. And then I loved what I was doing. Like every single moment I was in Haiti, I was in Afghanistan, I was in Congo, I was in Chad. So I was in many of these places which have an extremely bad reputation at the outside and where people, they hear you are in Kabul and they're like, oh my goodness, no. And I think I was very blessed in the sense that I had a very different access to these places and to the people there. And I'm very, very certain that I was given much more than I gave them. Because A, I had the opportunity to build relationships that I would have never had going there, saying hello and leaving, but by living in these places for three to four years. But also because every single day was a reminder how lucky we are. And that sounds so, I mean, that sounds so idealistic, rose-colored, whatever not, but like I, I still remember like today, I was walking in Haiti to the office and like every morning when I was leaving home and before I arrived at the office, there were these girls crossing my path, carrying water on their heads. And that was in the capital, mind you, that was not somewhere out in a rural village. Wow. And I, I still remember thinking every morning, it could have been me. Like we're all somehow different and we're all the same. And Many, many, many of these girls, they are smart. They were lucky to even survive. So they reached that age of 13, 14. But their chances of ever going to university, of even going, finishing to school, because if they were carrying water in the morning at seven, that means that it's unlikely to reach an age that somebody in the so-called developed countries would reach, like 
it's it's again it's this whole kaleidoscope that is basically triggered off in a certain direction in that split second of your verse where you write where you you are placed in the right time at the right place in the right family and in certain countries with the right gender and the right color yeah you you mentioned uh this component of going to these different locations and telling other people and they had a very different viewpoint you, you talked about the inside being able to to live there for three or four years and get to know these individuals not just as passerby but actually as human beings that you understood their you know some of the emotions and different pieces of of who they are what is the how can we translate some of that? Because I think there's a big piece of this, right? We, we look at the other, we look at those far off places that seem so different than how we live our lives. And yet, as you mentioned, there's, there's a lot of connectiveness. There's a lot of, we are very much the same. How, how do we get past that, that otherness of those other places and the scariness of something different uh, I don't know if there's a an answer to this, but uh, you know, given your experience, is there anything that you can point to that can help us in just getting past those initial biases that we have? Yeah, I think there are two complementary pieces, and they come back to again training our own mind to overcome that hurdle and this aspect of awareness. Okay, so. I know that I tend to, first of all, say, no, I don't want the different. But the first step is different is not necessarily bad. Mm. Different doesn't equal bad. And from that, there is no good or bad. There's just different. And the fact that there is different and that everything is different and that basically the person who enters this conversation is different from the person who will come out of it on the other side and that this moment is different from whatever this moment would have been five years ago is a shift in perspective in and by itself. And just to come to step out of this, okay, so there's black or white, and there's good or bad, and there's day or night, to just step out of this, there are only two boxes in life. Well, no, there's maybe a box here and a box there, if that's what we decide to do. But coming back to what I said before, we always have a choice. And there's not just the choice of, I put this in this box and this in that box. And if it doesn't fit in there, well, then I don't want it. But maybe the question to many of the pressing issues of this time is to get rid of the boxes. <laughs> yes. Uh, could we spend just a, a little bit of time on uh, some of the specific humanitarian work that you've done? You know, I, I noticed that you were in Haiti when, uh, what was that, uh, Hurricane Irma? Matthew. Yeah, Matthew, when Matthew came through. It's um, not always the women. <laughs> it's not always the women. No, it's not. <laughs> no. um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the sort of the day-to-day you know, work work that you were doing. I, I'm thinking of Haiti as an example, but could you just tell us about some of the day to day work that you do in these um, challenged areas? I think one of the elements that I really, really 
loved about my job. And I must once again say that I loved every moment and I loved every country. I loved the work I was doing, the people I was working with and for, and just the work in and by itself. And I think that was in the end, the reasons why I decided it's time to change because you can keep on doing what you love for 20 more years, but at a certain point, you will nevertheless reach that stage where you feel you're no longer growing and where you reach that peak where, yes, you're good at it, but that's not enough any longer. And one of the nice things was that the days were very different. Sometimes I was going to the field to make interviews, to take photos. On other days, I was organizing stuff. I was writing. I was So it was a wide range of things. The time or the months after Matthew, they were particularly, let's say, um, tense. Just because and there, there was, we were one of the first responders on the ground. And that means that on the one hand, there was the response, like to help the people really who, who were needing everything and who had lost everything. Like I, I remember I was traveling to the areas and it's like a napalm na, na bomb had been thrown, like really completely buff. Thrash, tabula rasa, nothing left. But there are still people who had survived there and they needed everything from the cooking pot to uh, the dinner that needs to go in it. Wow. And who had really lost their livelihoods completely. But so there was on the one hand that whole programmatic side, but then on the other hand, there were A, the media from around the world who wanted to have an information. And so that means people started to call you at one o'clock in the morning because it was nine o'clock in the morning for them. <laughs> or people call you at 11 at midnight and they say, oh, hello, I was wondering how the response is going. So it's like this, you, you realize in the moments of this kind of crisis response that, well, the world is round and there are many different time zones and plenty, plenty of different people with very different expectations. Again, everything is connected. But so you could have within a 24-hour time frame a huge set of different individuals to interact with. And it is kind of helpful to remind yourself from time to another that, yeah, they're really, really different, but they're all the same. I think it comes back to what I said initially. The clear cut doesn't really work. Yeah. I think that's a, a really key piece. We, we mentioned uh, the coronavirus earlier, and I know you've written uh, a, a, a book kind of on, on connection in times of COVID. Uh, what, what do we need to know? What do we need to take away in, in this pandemic that you would find useful for people to, to really be connected and, and to develop. I know you talked that we can take two different paths. So you want, you want to expand upon that kind of as you're, as you're thinking? Yeah, either we can go on as we did before. And that means we'll get more of the same because when you do more of the same, you get more of the same. That means we will sooner or later, probably rather sooner, come to another crisis like COVID and potentially looking at the world as it is right now, it will be worse because 
an extremely heavy load is placed on countries and people all around the world, it could have been much worse. It could have been so much worse. And it, it could have been combined with various different other diseases. It could have been that in addition to the virus in and by itself, there could have been a breakdown of the internet, like imagine mm -hmm. that, which was a lifeline for societies in many parts of the world. Um, so that's the first thing. We can do more of the same and get more of the same, which is not really desirable. And the second path is to understand that this is a challenge, but it's also an opportunity if we manage to seize it. If we seize the fact that this was a brutal reminder that it's time for change and that we all have a role to play to make that change happen. And that the aspect that systems, health systems, governmental systems around the world have failed to live up to this challenge, even so it was foreseeable and even so big governments around the world have had crisis simulations and contingency plans, that there are very few government agencies around the world that actually manage to be spot on is a very candid reminder of the fact that individuals can't put the responsibility to the institutions that are governing them. Mm. But coming back to this aspect of accountability for choice, you know now what are you going to do about it? Yeah, I think you, you brought up this aspect too of connectedness, right? And so we can come back to the status quo of we're these individual countries and we have our own response and the world out there handles it how it handles or it can it can awaken within us this larger perspective that we talked about earlier that we are all connected that that a virus that started in china uh, is spread throughout the entire world and it actually points to the fact that we're all human and that we are all facing you know this disease it isn't a chinese disease it isn't an american disease it isn't a european disease it is a worldwide disease and and we as people are facing the same potential of of harm and death and and we need to think about that as a way of potentially even changing our mindset of saying look we are all one in this world as opposed to all these different factions that are kind of living up that we kind of place ourselves in today all the different, as you said, the buckets, right? It might not be two buckets, but it's however many different buckets that are in the world. And really we should break those buckets apart and we should just think about us as humans and not just as you know Americans or Chinese or however that would be. In a way, the four dimensions of the individual, this soul, heart, mind, body expressed as aspirations, emotions, thoughts, and sensations, they are, I wouldn't say a mirror, but they are symmetrical to the collective dimensions of the environment that we operate in. Because you have the individuals, which are part of communities, which are part of countries, which are part of planet Earth. So again, you have this four-dimensional interplay where what happens in one dimension has implications on the others. Mm. So you have this twice four dimensionality and coming back to the multiple kaleidoscopes in front of the mirror that we spoke about earlier, 
Well, now you extrapolate that and it's just becoming this gigantic equation that we can understand or at least try to understand. But that in any given case, we must acknowledge and accept. And then we can start towards doing something about it. We have just a few minutes left here. I have to get in a couple questions about music here, though, before we go, because I'm fascinated that you have lived around the world. And while each culture has its own way of expressing music and rhythms and melodies and words, we all are connected to music. The, the whole world is all of, the, all of humankind. Has your playlist been influenced by the places that you've lived? Yes and no. I'm a bit erratic with my musical choice, I must say. So what I'm listening to depends very much on where I am, who I'm with, and in particular, which mood I'm in. So I don't have this, okay, I like X, and that's why I'm listening to XX1, XX2, XX3. I like, on the one hand, Pink because I met her in Haiti and she is a fascinating person and so much fun to talk to. But I also, having danced classic ballet for 10 years, I also love listening to classic music. And I still remember walking down an empty airstrip in Chad, listening to opera music. And you just have this vast empty space around you and you listen to Aida and it's just astounding. So I can't really pinpoint one stream of music where I would say, that's it. Yes, I love Dvorak, Symphony of the Seventh World if I need energy. Or I love Pink. Or I love the Beatles and the whole 70s and 80s and whatever there is. But I can't, again, give you a clear-cut answer. So I love the idea of curating your music by moods because, I, again, as, as Tim and I have talked about this over uh, the many episodes that we have had, uh, music can influence our moods. And yet sometimes I think it goes back to what you've talked about before, this inside-outside kind of perspective, right? This idea that, yeah, music can influence our moods, but we also choose our music because of the mood that we're in. And it, either to get us out into moving us into a new mood or to heighten the mood that we're already uh, being a part of. Do you find yourself using music as a, as a way to move yourself, like you said, you you listen to, and I, I forget, I've already forgotten what the music was to get you know energized and excited, or do you do it to really enhance the mood that you're already in, or is it some mixture of all of those, which I'm assuming uh, may be the case? It is indeed a mix of all of that. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I love it. Of course it is. <laughs> There's no this box or that box. There's it no is, this it that is box, a no. continuum. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Cornelia. Please, please answer. I want to. I want to hear your explanation of this mix. Um, yeah, no, but it's exactly that you summarized it. There is no either or, and there may be moments where you use the music to amplify the mood that they are in, and where you just want to dive in and like go with it. And then there are other moods where you think, nah, let's get out of it. Let's, let's 
skip that chapter and let's move on. And then it's the opposite. Yeah. We talked with Gary Latham and he talked about the idea of, you know, playing music in the background to, you know, make sure that he was having to influence where his mood was going. Right. Uh, and so it's, it's an interesting component. We haven't necessarily dove deep into this with many of our, many of our guests, but I think it's an area that, that Tim, we might need to explore a little bit more as we move forward with this. Yes. Yes. All right. Cornelia, thank you. This has been very informative. I love some of the concepts that you have talked, not just some, I, I love the concepts that you have talked about here. And I'm just really grateful that you took time out and shared this with us. And I'm sure our listeners are as well. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Cornelia, have a free flowing discussion and talk about whatever else comes into our pose brains. Ah, pose. Yeah. Pose. What? Oh. Can I just say right up front that I love, I love this idea that she took this word pose, not from her native German or French or English or sort of a, a mainstream language. She took it from the Creole word in Haiti. Like, so Creole is like this combination of a French and Haitian and African and all, all these kinds of things combined. And it's this native little, little phrase that means inner peace. I know. Isn't that fantastic? Oh, so cool. I just, I really just love that. I, I just have to give her some kudos for that. Okay. But that's not our grooving. Let's, what? It, it could be, we can groove on all day on Pose. We you know, on inner, inner peace, man, inner peace. on inner peace. Yeah. So where do you want to start our grooving session, Kurt? Well, that, so actually it is, it's part of that conversation that we had about Pose, but I, I love this, this quote that she had, which is that, um, you know, deep down, we are all looking for ways to be happy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, somewhere deep down looking for ways to be happy. I just thought that was really, A, it's, it's, I think it's very true, but the way that she stated it, I thought was just really poetic in, in, in a sense. And, and so I think there's some interesting pieces there, right? And so when she's talking about Pose, really it's about the search for happiness and, and our ability to find that happiness both individualistically and in a systemic kind of organizational way. Yeah. So, so Pose, you know, she talks about, about uh, pause and observing and zooming and experience, and she didn't get, we didn't get a chance to really dive into those um, in our, in our conversation, right? No, we didn't, but I think it's, it's, it's actually a pretty good kind of framework for thinking about how we can improve our happiness. If we pause, take that moment to just stop. Again, we've talked about pausing multiple times of getting out of our automatic system one thinking into a more system two thinking. But I think this pause is even more about pausing to then observe, right? Pausing, pause first, observe what's going on around you and take that in. Take in the sounds, take in this, the sights, you know, pay attention to the things that are going on around you. And then she talks about zooming in on yourself. So zoom in. So, all right, pausing, taking all this in. Now, what does this mean for you? What are the, how does this impact you as an individual? And then bringing that experience and taking that out into the world. Yeah. And I thought that was just a really 
wonderful framework to kind of move beyond our, you know, hectic day in, day out, uh, you know, pace that we keep doing. She also speaks to uh, two things that that really struck me about our conversation in this is that all of it comes back to this this outward expanding spiral. Like she uses this image of the outward expanding spiral constantly, right? So it, it, everything continues to start for where we want to where we want to be happy, our our inner self, right? At the same time, she doesn't exclude others, right? Mm. She she kind of she doesn't just imply, but she says that you know making others happy is contributing to our own happiness. That we can find you know there's there's something uh, hedonic about that, something you know uh, deep philosophical about that. And I love this idea that your own happiness doesn't have to be at the expense of others. It can actually be part of helping the world be a better place. Well, and and I think part of that is that balance between this this self-focus and this outward focus. And there is a there is a balance there mm-hmm. to to take that. But I love the concept too that helping others is a positive thing for you. It goes back to, you know, we talked about World Kindness Day last week and this idea of being kind. And and there was research that showed being kind not only, you know, made you feel good in the moment, right, of helping somebody else, it helped them out, which then helped the community out, which in, in the long run helped you out because you're part of that community that is now there. And I think this happiness piece is is the same way. If you create happiness for somebody else, you're, you're building them up. It's giving you that dopamine release at the moment, but they're happier. They create a better community around you. And thus that community helps reinforce the positive happiness back within you. So it's this reinforcing loop when we do that. That leads me into the second thing that, that or the, the first thing that I wanted to really groove on was that we are always human beings, always, right? That that, you know, like this idea that we're, we're coming in and out of these different situations uh, in, in throughout our life, but we are always a human being. We're never robots. We're never, we're never cow <laughs> dogs. dogs yeah. right? We're never that. We're always human beings. And, and she says, you know, it just wear our hat of humanity. Right? Yeah. Well, and I think this, this was the conversation where it's like, you don't go into work and become a non-human at work. When you are at work, you are still a human being. And oftentimes organizations don't really think that way, right? They they put programs and processes and procedures in place that treat us more like the robots that we are not, or as these very, very staid, unemotional people. And I think that's a mistake. And, And it's something that we've heard over and over and over again with with other guests on the show and it's it's some of the stuff that we we're working on right we're 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 working to develop some uh, a program to help companies overcome that and and to treat their people and to lead them as as human beings and actually we we've, we've trademarked it as as leading human um isn't, isn't this especially true right now during a world pandemic right that that Companies need to be thinking much more about the emotional well-being and the psychological safety of the employees in the company than they ever have been before. It's more important today to show up human, to lead human. To uh, it, what, didn't Brad Shuck speak to this? 
Well, yeah, he talked about this and it was really fascinating because he talked, I mean, this was prior to the pandemic when we talked about him the first time and he's talking about some of these horrible practices that people do. And he, he brought up the example of when his boss threw the stapler at, at somebody, right? And and I just was in disbelief, but I think that happens more, not necessarily throwing a stapler at people in your in your workforce, but that idea that you just need to be, you know, demanding uh, you, you're, you're kind of, uh, holding people accountable to standards that are just un- unacceptable and treating them kind of as dogs or as robots. And, and that is particularly in, in a pandemic where we're already, where people are under a st- amount of stress that is unprecedented. That is something that is not going to serve you well in the long run. It's not even going to serve you well in the short run, but in the long run, it is definitely going to hurt you. And so, um, you know, we're, we're working on putting some things together around that and hopefully that'll be out within the next month. So. Yeah. yeah the leading human stuff, I think is going to be really cool. Yeah. Kurt, what else did you want to, to grow? Oh on? man. I mean, uh, you know, she talked a lot about the interconnectedness, not only the interconnectedness of us as individuals, you, you already kind of talked about with the happiness piece, right? It's not just about our own happiness. It's about making happiness for others, but also this interconnectedness of organizations, of societies, and that what happens in uh, one area of the world it is no longer just you know, isolated in that one area of the world, we are all interconnected and we are all part of this human species and it plays out in a a multitude of ways. And it was really fascinating because you think about this, it's this concept of what's going on in the pandemic and, and various different aspects of that. But, um, you know, I was hopeful at the beginning of the pandemic that it would bring us together and one of the things that I think I'm seeing is that that's not necessarily the case, that we still have our in-groups and our out-groups. And we tend to put people and others in in boxes, as, as she said. Right. And I thought that was a good conversation, too, about, you know, taking things out of the black and white and into, you know, this box and that box and just getting rid of the boxes. And- just get rid of the boxes. Yeah. I mean, we started the pandemic. It's a global virus. Everyone in the entire world is at risk. And so it could have easily become a, uh, a a fight between people versus the virus. Like we could have had people on one side and the virus on the other, and we could have unified as human beings around it to fight the virus. And yet that's not what happened. What mm. ended up happening was we put each other into boxes and it became a people versus people issue rather than a people versus the virus issue. I, I wanted to say one other thing that strikes me about Cornelia's comments in general, uh, and the interconnectedness is really a, a key part of it. And I don't mean to be elevating her to some grand status, but she does have a unique ability to connect to the big picture. And it's a really good reminder that just in the same way that religions rely on priests or rabbis or monks or imams, you know, she does this really wonderful thing of raising our consciousness um, that produces sort of a more hopeful picture of what the world could be. And I, I really appreciated that about her. I thought it was just fantastic. Well, you brought up mindfulness. And I think that is really apropos because a lot of what she's talking about is our mindset and making sure that we have the right mindset for thinking about the world today and ourselves within it. And this interconnectedness that we have both as individuals, 
but as we have to a larger sense of community, to society, to, to the globe. And I thought that was really fascinating. So yeah, yeah. that's good. What about you? Uh, let's see. You know, connected, it all comes back to connectedness. You know, it all comes back to, to these kinds of things. But she did have a quote that I, I think I actually brought up with her when we were talking, where she said, so driven was I by the craving for something or another that I omitted to savor the beauty of now. I mean, just let that soak in, right? The, the idea that we miss out of the moment, the beauty of now, because we're driven or craving something to, to move past. Like I have this goal and we don't stop to pause. We don't stop to observe the moment and we don't have this ability to then look inside of ourselves and, and see how we're feeling and how we're doing and just appreciate and, you know, savor the beauty of, of right now. I think that's, it's, it's just a wonderful point yeah. and one that I, I think is really, if I had to take anything out of this oh, yes. uh, entire interview, it would be you need to savor the beauty of now much more. Yeah, it, it really is. It also reminds me of uh, some work that you and I are doing on finding your groove. Mm. Right? There's this connection to this idea that without some kind of appreciation of the world around us, it's going to be really hard to find our groove, to really mm. find a, a degree of ongoing happiness in the, in the, in the world. You bring up a really good point, right? It's this element of not only feeling like you're you're moving forward to something that craving for something else but it's taking those times to pause and to reflect upon the the situation and observe what you're you're dealing with and how you're responding to that that can help you get into the, you know into your groove we we talk about you know mindsets as a as a part of of finding your groove. It's one of the, the, the pieces of the puzzle that we've, we've uncovered, right? It's this, you know, how you think, right? The mindset that you, you take and then, you know, having a rhythm to, to that world. And part of that is really about pausing in the moment and taking stock of what is going on around you and appreciating that. And as she said, yeah, much more eloquently than we could ever say, you know, uh, find the beauty of now. Before we get on to our bonus track, can I ask you a music question? You can. I was curious, is there any music that you listen to that puts you in a space that reminds you of, of a bigger world? Mm. You know, um, when I think of the bigger world, I think of, of people, right? And so you can probably guess that I'm going to go to one of my old standbys, a Depeche Mode song. People are people, Right which really is the song about why do we hate why why is this immediate hate of of other it's this in group versus out group and and that we should just get rid of that that you know um people are people so why does it seem that you and I get along so awfully right yeah um you know what are some other quotes you know i've never even met you so what could i have done you know um you know, all of these, these types of, of things that, that come into play. And so that, that kind of brings me, you know, raises that up to saying, let's, let's take a look at, at people and how we treat others. And it doesn't matter if they're 
our next door neighbor, if they're our family or friend, or if they're from halfway around the world, they're people and people are people. And so I, I, that's, that's me. Well, it's, it's one of my favorite Depeche Mode tunes in part because it's got this great depth of meaning, right? It's really fun to have a pop tune that has real gravity to it. And uh, the message there has always been fantastic. So yeah. What about you? Any, any, any music? You know, I, I find myself going to, uh, to folk music from different parts of the world. Like what elevates me out of my space is to listen to folk music from, say, uh, Portugal, you know, mm. Fado, uh, Maritza specifically. I think she's fantastic. Or uh, there's, a, uh, there's an African uh, guy named uh, Ayub uh, Ogata. And uh, he, he does the, uh, the Kotsbiro, which is the, the calling, uh, the shepherds calling the sheep. And they call it the Kotsbiro. And uh, he does this beautiful rendering of this old folk song, right? I mean, this is what the shepherds use in the field to, to, to call the sheep in. And, and so there's that. Of course, uh, Brazilian music, I love. I love the Bossa Nova. And so Gilberto Gil and Fabiano de Nascimento. We've talked about him uh, in the past. Um, I like uh, klezmer music from Israel. You know, again, all, these are Tim Sparks is a fantastic klezmer guy from, um, he's, he's in the U.S., but he plays uh, traditional folk style songs from Israel. And there's, I think that there's something wonderful in, in, in folk music because it evolves from the culture in a really organic way. And uh, it gives you a glimpse of, of that community, right? Right. And, and again, opens your eyes up to worlds that we don't necessarily live in or that we don't have any actually information on. So I think that's great. You know what? I need to go in and, and look at the show notes on, on a lot of our shows and actually listen to some of the music that you suggest. <laughs> it wouldn't hurt. I just... uh, you know, it wouldn't hurt. I, 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 you know, our listeners should do that. You should go to the show notes, l- click on Tim's links. Cause mine are boring, but Tim's are like, he brings in these people from God knows where that he just has found and don't it's, it's just expansive of our musical understanding and, and different pieces. So that's, that's my, that's my to-do list for, for <laughs> this next week. I'm going to go click on some links. Well, so. before, before we get to your to-do list, uh, hang around folks. And we've got a quick bonus track coming up for you. Hey Groovers. This is Kurt with our bonus track for the episode with Cornelia Walter. Cornelia reminded us that at a deep level, we all want to be happy. She developed Jose as a way of exploring the world that will help uncover that happiness. While she mentioned that she had many different ways of describing it, the one that we liked best was pause. Observe what's going on around you, zoom in on yourself, and then experience what is going on around you. These are really wise thoughts. We also discussed how we are all interconnected, that your world and my world may be very different, yet we share connections across the globe. Our hope is that we recognize this connectedness, both at a personal level and at a larger global level. One of our favorite lines from Cornelia was the one that she wrote that said, so driven was I by the craving for something or another that I omitted to savor the beauty of now. We all need to take a moment to pause and savor the beauty of now. And that leads us to our groove idea for the week. We think it would be a good idea if we purposely tried to gain a little bit of happiness. 
we are going to take pose and turn it into a mindfulness exercise for you. So what we want is for you to take a moment, either after hearing this right away or later today, but go ahead and take a pause and just be still with the moment. Then observe what is going on around you. Listen for the sound, see the detail of what is around you. Separate yourself from the moment and just observe. Then zoom in on yourself. What are you experiencing? What are you feeling? And then when all of that is done, take that insight and move it into the world with a new perspective and experience it fully and completely. As always, give it some consideration and drop us a line. Discuss this with your friends if you think it's interesting, and we'd like to hear what you think. If you do this, let us know how it worked out for you, and did you find a little bit more happiness? So that wraps up another episode of Behavioral Grooves. We appreciate you listening and hope you enjoyed it. Now we hope you go out and find your groove this week. 